Chapter Nine of Miss Frances Baird, Detective by Reginald Wright Kaufman. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Mr. Fredericks returns. And now, you say, she went at last back to the gift room where all the other people were. Well, I did nothing of the sort, for I had my own theories of this case, and this is what they were. In the first place, I knew that James J. Deneen, Jr., had been murdered, which was more than anybody else knew except the person who had murdered him. In the second place, I was certain that he had been murdered by the thief of the real jewels. And in the third place, I picked Lawrence Fredericks as the guilty man. It was not a time to spin elaborate theories, but everyone's mind, I suppose, works more or less subconsciously along the lines of her or his profession, and so I reasoned something like this. Fredericks was in love with Evelyn Bladesdell. She was to have been married to young Deneen on Tuesday, but she had as much as told Fredericks that, if he could at all support her, she would, even at the last moment, break her engagement in favour of Lawrence. He, on his side, was in a position where, it seemed, the possession of ten thousand dollars, which he had virtually confessed that he could not gain by honest means, would ensure a fortune. And he had, with his own lips, noted the fact that, close at hand lay the diamonds, a mere part of which, converted into ready cash, would secure him riches and the wife he coveted. That much was absolutely certain. He had himself admitted it, and it supplied the old double motive, woman and wealth. So far, Kemp's theory of the case was undoubtedly the correct one, as, indeed, it could not well help being, in view of such facts as I had brought to his knowledge. But here entered the small detail of which I had neglected to inform him, the fact of the key. A man cannot cut his own throat and then toss the key of his room through the transom, and intending suicide would not generally toss out the key before he committed the deed. Anyhow, I was certain that at least two of the coincident crimes were intimately connected, and that murder had been done. How and why? Well, the first theft had evidently been the result of a carefully matured plan. Fredericks was the friend of the family, had surely seen the jewels often enough, and had, as an intimate of the elder son, no doubt managed to secure the opportunity to have the imitation jewels manufactured, just where I could determine later. It was his purpose to cover up his theft until the jewels had changed hands so often that it would be impossible to tell just when or where the robbery, when it was finally detected, had occurred. He had laid his plans well, and if the imitation had cost more than the money he had told Evelyn he needed, why, that merely meant that he had lied to Evelyn, and that, moreover, he had a confederate. With the paste jewels in his possession, and the coast almost clear for the act of substitution, Fredericks had heard a sudden noise from the direction of the gift-room. Naturally, he was startled. Naturally, also, the first thought that would come to a thief's mind was the thought of a thief. Somebody might be ahead of him. Some other thief might be ruining his plans. The words had leaped to his lips, and I had overheard them. Then, I supposed, the instant Evelyn had gone downstairs, Fredericks, his paste jewels hastily secured from his own room, or some even more convenient hiding-place, had gone at once into the gift-room, and while I was back of the door, had taken the real diamonds and left the paste ones in their stead. Young Deneen had looked very wise and determined when we told him of the theft. He probably had quickly pieced together one or two scraps of information he had about the other side to the character of his friend Fredericks. No doubt the latter had lately tried to borrow from him the money he needed, and had concluded quietly to accuse the thief of the crime while he kept Kemp and me busy elsewhere, thus saving all open scandal. With this plan in mind, he then proceeded to Frederick's door. 
the guilty man having gone at once to his own room. There Deneen had knocked and asked Fredericks into the next apartment. Closeted together, the pair had talked. The accusation had been made, and Fredericks, to save himself from disgrace, had suddenly decided to play the game to a finish. Perhaps he had even pretended repentance, and then, going over to his quondam friend, had murdered him. He had next come out and locked the door, throwing or dropping the key in the hall. Then he had locked his own door and descended over the roof, taking the diamonds with him. This was in order not to be caught prowling about the upper part of the house, where he must fear that everybody would now soon be gathered. Once below he had, of course, re-entered by one of the ground-floor windows, for you will remember that the elder Mr. Deneen had not yet locked up for the night, and made his way to the cellar, there to burn such of his clothes as were blood-stained. There I had almost caught him, but he had got away free for the time, and was now either hiding the diamonds somewhere about the grounds, or turning them over to his possible confederate, after which he would return to his room by the way he had left it. He had hoped, naturally, to be back before the alarm was given, and only my excursion into the cellar had delayed him in carrying out his plans. But now, come what would, he must get back. If his absence had not been discovered, all would yet be well for him. If, on the other hand, it had been discovered, he must simply have some plausible story to account for it, and trust to bluffing through. Flight, at any rate, was tantamount to a confession. Running away he would easily be caught, and returning he would be in our own hands. Either way, it looked as if Mr. Fredericks was as good as mine. That, in brief, was the rough theory which I had framed to suit the case. It accounted for pretty nearly everything but the second theft and the note found on young Deneen's desk. Those, at any rate, were mere details. They might have nothing to do with the murder. The note, at least, meant absolutely nothing at all when not taken in connection with its surroundings, and the theft of the paste diamonds dwindled into insignificance beside the theft of the real ones and the murder itself. I, finally, had no interest in the paste jewels anyway. It was clearly my business to recover the real ones, to do which I must get once more upon the trail of Mr. Lawrence Fredericks, and that just as quickly as I could. This is why I did not follow Bromley Deneen into the gift-room, and that is why, after satisfying myself that Frederick's room was still empty, I ran instead into the dark corner of the hall where I had left the clothes I had shed, and put them on again as best I might. While I was thus engaged, I heard Stenger and Remington return, and Kemp call them to the others. They had, as I learned later, stopped in the village for a nightcap or two, which explained their long delay. I, for my part, waited until Kemp had conducted them to the gift-room. Then, at last, I hurried out of the house, and, clothed and pretty nearly in my right mind, made my way toward a spot directly under Mr. Frederick's window. As a precautionary measure, I had put out the hall light before I made my hasty but careful exit, for I did not want anyone who might be prowling about outside to be warned of my coming. The great thing was to take my man by surprise, and to this end I tiptoed across the piazza and out to the lawn, made my way to the point where the vine told me to stop, and then, climbing onto the porch again, sat down in a convenient chair, and, revolver in hand, waited. The lights on the lawn had been long since extinguished, but those in the ground-floor rooms were still shining cheerfully through the unshuttered windows, so that, as I sat there in the shadow, I looked out upon long shafts of light bordered by complete darkness. Except for an occasional sound from within the house, the silence was unbroken. Bending slightly before a window, I looked at my watch, and saw that it was two minutes after four. 
Of course, I anticipated nothing so melodramatic as to apprehend Fredericks immediately upon his return, unless something should happen which would make him show fight. But I was intent upon getting the first interview with him, and upon seeing how he took the news which I had for him. Consequently, every slow moment that passed made the ordeal less and less endurable, and I was in mortal fear that the police would arrive, or that Kemp would be seeking me, or that, perhaps, some general alarm would at any instant be given. I discovered afterward that my coadjutor had unwittingly done me a good turn, by imperatively deciding that, though young Deneen had committed suicide, the authorities must not be informed before Fredericks was heard to return. He thought that I was still in the upstairs hall, and would inform him of this event, as otherwise their coming might frighten away the thief of the jewels. But as I now sat on that silent porch, and looked out upon the confusing strips of light and darkness, I could, of course, know nothing of this, and so the minutes lengthened themselves into hours until I began almost to despair. Several times, of course, I thought I heard my man approaching, and several times I was forced to conclude that it was only casual night sounds that had deceived me. Then I heard the hall clock strike the half-hour after four, and at the end of about ten minutes more my long vigil was at last rewarded. He came stealthily, but I heard him. I have laboriously trained my ears for that sort of thing. A long way off. First the snapping of a twig far away to the left, then a wary footstep drawing cautiously nearer over the grass. Next the dim outline of a man in the darkness just ahead, an outline that you felt rather than saw, and finally the clear figure full in the shaft of light from the window at my side. I think I shall never quite forget that first glimpse of him. Certainly it is as clear to my mind's eye to-day as it was that night nine years ago. The man I had been waiting for through that interminable thirty-five minutes, which seemed like as many hours, the man whom I regarded as a thief and a murderer. He was tall and slim, but so well proportioned as to indicate that balance of strength which is so far more impressive, because so much more reserved, than the commoner undue development of one part of the body at the expense of another. His fine head was set on a good neck that bore it almost too proudly between the broad shoulders. His hair, peeping in small curls made by the dampness from under his opera hat, was very light, his features severely regular and calm, his face clean-shaven, and his big eyes blue. It was the face and figure of a strong, rather ingenious boy, who could not have been a day over twenty-six, and who impressed me as absurdly open and honest. My first thought, I distinctly recollect, was that I had made a mistake, that this could not be my man. That idea was strengthened by a glance at his dress waistcoat, which had plain pearl buttons, and not at all the sort I had rather expected to see. But in an instant I was myself again. This was clearly one of the party, and the only one of the party unaccounted for was Lawrence Fredericks. Moreover, the fancy buttons belonged to a waistcoat that had been burned. I slunk a little lower into the shadow of the porch, and waited. Fredericks hesitated, evidently alarmed to find the house still brightly illuminated. Then he glanced quickly to right and left, assured himself that he was unobserved, approached the porch, and finding the post with the vine on it, started to draw himself up on the way toward his window. The first movement brought his face just on a level with mine. I was ready. I said, Oh! At the sound of that low cry, he dropped. But he landed on his feet, and though, in the face that was still turned toward me, I could read alarm, I could not read anything like fear. However, I was resolved to press what advantage I had. 
I came out into the full light, my revolver held discreetly behind me. "'You are Mr. Fredericks, aren't you?' I asked. He was still very much embarrassed, as who indeed would not have been, but he managed pretty well. "'Yes,' he said, laughing uneasily, "'though I don't know how you guessed it, seeing that you caught me trying to get into the house as if I were a burglar.' "'Oh,' I answered, and I tried to make my tone significant. "'I was startled at first, but I would never have supposed you were a thief.' "'Thank you,' he responded, frankly enough. "'But appearances were against me. I found, about fifteen minutes ago, that I wanted a stroll before I could sleep. I didn't want to disturb anybody, so I took a queer means of exit, and was just now preparing to return in the same manner that I went. I presume you didn't feel like turning in at once, either?' The tone was honesty itself, and yet his room had been empty for more than an hour before, and I had been waiting on that porch for at least thirty-five minutes. I played the last card that I dared to play so early in the game. No, I said, fingering that revolver behind my back. It wasn't that which kept me awake. I wanted particularly to see you. To see me, he repeated, and I imagined that his tone grew a shade less comfortable. Yes, I hurried to explain. I have not had the pleasure of meeting you before, but I must now speak to you on a matter of importance. My name is Baird. He bowed civilly. I am very happy, he said. I had heard there was a Miss Baird in our party. But not, said I, that she was a detective. At this his face lengthened visibly. A detective? Precisely. Mr. Fredericks, I have waited here to tell you that the Deneen diamonds have been stolen. Great Scott! Oh, he did it admirably, but I was not so readily to be deceived. I gripped my revolver tight now, and brought it quietly forward, still hidden among the folds of my dress. And, I concluded, leaning over until our faces nearly met, that James J. Deneen, Jr., I paused purposely, but his features formed only a perfect question, and weighing every syllable I pursued, that young Mr. Deneen has just been found dead in his own room, with his throat cut from ear to ear. That knocked him. He almost collapsed. He pitched forward, gripping the porch railing, which alone saved him from a fall but he got his nerves together in an instant. "'Miss, miss,' he began. "'Miss Baird,' I calmly supplied. "'Miss Baird, you're not joking? Surely this is too ghastly for a joke.' "'I assure you that I am telling the ugly truth.' "'Why, then, then we must act at once. Who did it? Have the family been told? Do they know? What has been done?' As he fired these questions, he vaulted the railing and stood facing me. Then he came to a pause. Why, he gasped, Jim's room was just next to mine. I looked at him long and searchingly, and, at last, that old curse of sentimentality began to work in my heart. Yes, I said, it was, and if I were you, I'd be a bit careful what I said. Come on, the others are all upstairs. End of chapter 9